HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Hey everyone, this is Kat Johnson, HRN's Communications Director. For the past month, HRN on tour has been a little quiet. Like the rest of you, our team has been hunkered down at home due to the coronavirus pandemic. But a few months ago, before all of this, I had the opportunity to visit a very special farm and experience regenerative agriculture in a really unique way. I thought this would be a good time to share this audio. The conversation around meat production and the food supply chain is particularly important right now. In February 2020, while I was visiting family in Alabama and Georgia, I spent the afternoon with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. He took me on a ride around his sixth-generation family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. We knew rain was in the forecast, but as the truck bounced along dirt roads, the showers turned into a full-on downpour. But despite the storm, I got a clear look at the land and the ethos behind White Oak Pastures. Those are turkeys you see loose out there. This is my house where I raised my three daughters. That's where I still live. Those are mama cows that are summer calving. I have a winter calving herd and a summer calving herd. So we can have cattle to slaughter 52 weeks a year. This, this house up here, that junk out back is uh, hurricane damage. Uh, hurricane Mike, we were ground zero Hurricane Michael. We're still recovering from that. The house with the big porch was built by my great, my, excuse me, my granddaddy in 1909. My daddy was born in it and I was born in it. My daughter Jenny and her par- partner Amba and my grandson Jack Harris live in it now. While we were on the tour, Will explained that this 3,200-acre property has been with his family for generations, but it hasn't always been centered in sustainability and holistic management practices. 
Will has worked tirelessly to create a farm that is both forward-looking and strongly tied to the past. Uh, I was blessed in that I inherited this thousand acres of land that we're on right now. This is, this is the old home place <clears throat> and with no debt. And uh, I'd never borrowed money. I, I went to the University of Georgia. I majored in animal science. I graduated in 1976. <clears throat> I came home and ran a, an industrial monocultural cattle operation for 20 years. Mid-90s, uh, uh, I, I, was in, I, I was increasingly uh, displeased with the uh, unintended consequences of that production system. So I started changing gradually, and we just never quit changing. And in fact, the way that we farm today is way more similar to what my great-granddaddy and my granddaddy did than it is what my father and I did. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, by the time I started uh, making the changes, pretty much all the people that really remembered the old ways were not here anymore. We kind of had to figure it out ourselves. <clears throat> there was, you know, there was some collective memory around that was, was and is helpful. White Oak Pastures grows organic produce and raises 10 species of animals. This is, uh, this is kind of the, the, the thing that initially made our farm different from so many others is that uh, in 2007, I built that building straight ahead of us, and that's a red meat abattoir or slaughter plant. And uh, in it, we can slaughter cows, hogs, sheep, goats, and rabbits, and we do. And we, the building beside it uh, was built in 2010, and it's a poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. And in it, we can slaughter anything with feathers. And we pasture-raise uh, five red meat species, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and we hand-butcher them there. We pasture-raise five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, ducks, and we hand-butcher them there. Will's work at White Oak Pastures revolves around three core values, regenerative land management, humane animal husbandry, and revitalizing their rural community. We've got uh, six cabins that we rent out for uh, agritourism, and <clears throat> that's not profitable for us, but we really feel strongly about it because cons consumers, it's, 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 it's probably the best part of our marketing effort. You know, consumers are hopelessly confused about food. The USDA labels are just fraudulently uh, mislabeled, misguiding, disingenuous. Uh, the certifications, verifications, some of them are good, but some of them are just very low-hanging fruit, and consumers can't tell the difference. Uh, you know, multi, big multinational food companies hire very expensive wordsmiths to not raise the animals any differently, but to talk about it differently so the consumers just don't know what they're doing. And the only weapon that a farm like us has against those things is authenticity. Come and look. We will give you 100% transparency on everything we do. You can see 
animals born, animals being slaughtered, anything we do here, we will show you. And you can come and stay on the farm and eat in our restaurant and shop in our store and leave here feeling really, really good about about the way we, we do what we do. You know, that, that centralization, industrialization caused rural America to become uh, irrelevant. There's nobody needed it anymore. And uh, when we changed how we farm, uh, this town became relevant again. Uh, I moved from having three or four minimum wage employees to 160-something employees that make twice the county average. And when we brought all those young, passionate, educated people in here, they needed a place to eat and sleep and drink and play. And, and the town is, is, is coming back. Uh, I started in the mid-90s. Uh, I started moving away from the industrial model. And uh, it didn't intend to change, but just a little bit. But it just kept changing and changing. We're still changing. And, and that's what, and, and, and the, the, the resurrection of this little town was uh, never uh, an intended consequence. It's an unintended consequence, but it's very pleasant. Will explains how he expanded his knowledge of holistic land management and put the philosophy into action. Have you ever heard of Alan Savory, Savory Institute? <clears throat> so Alan Savory is an 80-something-year-old rancher from Zimbabwe, and he is touted as being the father of holistic range and pasture management. And uh, I, I never heard of Alan until I'd been doing this for 15 years. And by the time I heard of him, I thought I knew as much about holistic pasture management as anybody on the face of the earth. I wouldn't have said it, but I thought it. And I heard him speak, and he, he just knew way more than I did. So uh, I went to Zimbabwe and took my holistic management, range management under him. <clears throat> and we are now what's called a Savory Institute hub. There are 20-something on uh, six continents to east of the Mississippi, us in Michigan State University. And we practice and study and teach holistic land management. And the holistic land management is what allowed us to move this farm from a half percent organic matter to five percent organic matter. But I'll interrupt, let's say that, that's, this is my cousin, this is mine. And the soil on this side of that fence is a half percent organic matter. And the soil on that side is over 5% organic matter. And, uh, what that, and there's no difference except a fence in 25 years of holistic, prescriptive, animal management grazing. Uh, to, to give you a sense of that is 1% uh, one, one organic matter will absorb about 20,000 gallons of water. And 20,000 gallons of water is an inch of rain on Rekha land. So uh, this, what we're experiencing right now is going to wind up being a six-inch rain event probably by the time it's over. And that's not real unusual here. We get 54 inches a year. My land will absorb five of that six inches. 
my cousin's land will absorb one half inch and the rest of it will run off. And when it runs off, it's, it's damaged. Not only is it not available for plants later, it's very damaging. You know, that's how we got the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's how all the topsoil gets washed away. He shares a glimpse of how he maintains a closed loop on his farm. We operate these plants as zero waste. That uh, shiny tank you see there is a biodiesel converter. And it takes fat from the animals and turns it into biodiesel that we power the tractors with. That big green grinder you see is a renderer. And all of the, what's normally called uh, packing plant waste, I call it a nutrient stream, they call it a waste stream, but it's uh, eviscerate, gut fill, feathers, heads, whatever's not marketable, is ground up and loaded on a dump truck that's not here right now. It's making a, a, a haul and we compost that and we apply it to our pastures. But that, uh, that shiny machine there is a digester. All the blood from both plants is put in that digester and it turns it into, uh, think about blood meal, except it's liquid. It digests, uh, uh, compost, uh, it's a liquid version of compost. And all, all that material is put on the pastures and all of it is just really wonderful. You know, used to, I fed corn to cattle. Now we feed compost to the microbes that feed the soil, that feed the plant, that feed the cattle. So it's much more complex than what we used to do. So in looking over back to what you said was your cousin's land and then more over here on this side of the road, you can tell a big difference in color. Yeah. It's so green over here. Yeah. Can you and talk that, about why that is? Yeah. it's. Uh, so I love the term teeming with life. That, 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 that's just a beautiful term. And this land is teeming with life. And the 5% the organic matter is an indication of it, and it's also part of the reason for it. You know, that land is planted in corn, then cotton, then peanuts, all of which are like 120-day crops. So it has roots actively growing in the soil, feeding microbes. Soils feed microbes, uh, microbes feed roots, and roots feed microbes. It's symbiotic, it works both ways. That only has living roots in the soil one-third of the year. You know, this, this land has living roots in the soil 52 weeks a year. You know, we're blessed to be in southwest Georgia where we don't have snow, so we've got something green growing. This is first of February, and you see that's just beautiful green there. What, you, it's, like what's, what are some of the things growing? Clover and... Yeah, I see. I see clover, vetch, rye, ryegrass. Um, uh, I see oats. I see uh, brassicas, probably a turnip. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't like monocultures. We like uh, a lot of different species of plants, a lot of different species of microbes, a lot of different species of animals all living in symbiotic relationships with each other. Amazingly, Will is pushing the boundaries of regenerative ag even further. Sustainability is no longer enough. With a new project on the farm, he's aiming to go carbon negative. 
After a bumpy, rainy ride, the truck pulled into a pasture that was filled with giant solar panels, reaching as far as the eye could see in all directions. It was a little mind-boggling. So we are uh, at the northern gate of a 1,450-acre property that a uh, renewable energy company called uh, Silicon Ranch from Nashville, Tennessee, purchased from a friend of mine. My friend is a lifelong farmer. This land had been in his family for a lot of generations. You know, it was in a uh, row crop farming system of uh, industrially raised corn followed by industrially raised cotton followed by industrially raised peanuts, all in monocultures, uh, rotated one crop behind the other. <clears throat> it would have uh, been up to a lot of use of uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides and GMOs. Uh, the uh, renewable energy company, Silicon Ranch, bought this property. <clears throat> In a very short period of time, uh, they installed 355,000 of those solar panels you see there <clears throat> on the 1,400 acres of land. And the solar panels... Uh, follow the sun <clears throat> and they uh, uh, one of the things that makes this uh, array very different is the decision has been made to control the vegetation under the panels using my livestock typically in a big industrial uh, array like this vegetation control is done with uh, chemicals and uh, uh, mowed with uh, uh, mowers, string trimmers, a lot of petrochemical uh, petroleum used. <clears throat> the herbicides that don't kill the, the plant will stunt the plant. It's all about keeping the plant from shading the panel. <clears throat> Silicon Ranch has hired us to control that vegetation using our livestock. It'll principally be sheep We'll probably also have poultry under there. <clears throat> We've got the first 450 head of sheep coming uh, this coming Tuesday, uh, four days from now. Uh, it's really exciting. You know, when I proposed this situation to the Silicon Ranch executives, uh, I said, you know, coal-burning power, power from a coal-burning plant is reductive. You know, it, it, it uses up coal, it puts greenhouse gases up into the atmosphere, and you know, we think it, it contributes to climate change. <clears throat> what is done in a typical renewable energy array is renewable. It captures the energy of the sun, so it's a very low footprint, very small carbon footprint, but still a bit of a carbon footprint. But using uh, sheep the way we're going to use here is actually regenerative. Not only do, does the array produce power uh, without generating carbon, and they put, releasing carbon into the atmosphere, but the way we manage this land will actually sequester carbon. It'll pull greenhouse gases down from the atmosphere and, and sequester them uh, as roots and organic matter in the soil. <clears throat> I'm not telling you what I think, I'm telling you what I know. Uh, we've been doing this on our farm for 25 years. 
Will is deeply committed to the intricate processes of holistic land management like this, but he's equally concerned with their results. And in fact, if you'll go to our website, whiteoakpastures.com, in the environmental section, you'll see a scientific study that was done that proves it. Environmental engineers published a very expensive, peer-reviewed scientific work that demonstrates that our land management system, prescribed grazing, is carbon negative. In fact, on our farm, it shows that for every pound of beef that we produce with this grazing system, we actually sequester 3.5 pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent in the land. We have a negative carbon footprint. Interesting, the same environmental engineering outfit, Qantas, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, did a the same sort of analysis on Impossible Burger during the same time period. And they found that Impossible Burger actually emits 3.5 pounds, exactly the same amount, except mine's negative, theirs positive, for every pound of Impossible Burger they produce. So while Dr. Pat Brown, the CEO of Impossible Burger, says that the one of the main reasons people should buy his product is it helps save the earth. The truth is you've got to eat one pound of my beef to offset every pound of Impossible Burger that you might eat, which is ironic. You know, I am not one of the uh, beef producers that rails against vegetable protein. I think it's fine. I think that uh, consumers should have a choice. If you've got any consumer... It says, I don't want to eat meat because I, I just can't bear to eat a, an, an animal that's lived. I respect that. If, if a person says it, 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 it makes me feel bad, they shouldn't eat it. If they say, I don't like the way it feels in my mouth, they shouldn't eat it. But I will not accept you should eat Impossible Burger instead of my grass-fed beef because it's better for the environment. It's not. Well, that, I mean, there, there's absolutely... No doubt that uh, our production system is not part of contributing to climate change. We are part of the solution for climate change. And I really don't see why that's hard for thinking people to understand. Will's belief in his practices and their effects stems from an expansive philosophy of holistic land management and taps into fundamental facts about the Earth's natural processes. You know, the Earth evolved with herbivores eating photosynthesizing plants, moving across the landscape, pushed by predators, which is exactly the biomimicry that we do. And what we do emulates the way the Earth was formed. The, uh, the farm, I, I, I think I told you, is 3,200 acres, and it's... It's chopped up into over 130-acre paddocks. And we move the animals just about every day uh, in, to, to emulate nature. This is called biomimicry. You know, the way, and it's part of the holistic management. The way the earth evolved was herbaceous creatures. Back a long time ago, it would have been brontosauruses moved by predators. The, the Tronosaurus rex would have pushed them around. They were out there eating and they were behind them, pushing them. 
more recently we can we can understand better would be buffalo being moved by wolves on the Great Plains or caribou being moved by polar bears on the tundra or gazelles being moved by or gazelles being moved by lions in the Serengeti Plain and uh, that's what we, we, we emulate that we, we're the predators we're the ones that move the animals so the, the whole thing that we're talking about here is about the cycles of nature. And if you don't know, I'll tell you, those cycles of nature are the, the water cycle, rain here, the energy cycle, the sun putting radiation down on the earth, the mineral cycle, microbes turning rocks into uh, minerals that plants can assimilate, uh, the carbon cycle, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, putting it in the earth, uh, probably many other cycles that we don't even recognize. And when they are allowed to operate optimally, they create an abundance. And that abundance is the oil and coal and gas in the ground. When you break them, then all those cycles go away and the abundance is gone and it becomes an inhospitable place for, for life to be. You know, the... the uh, I guess astronomers or geologists tell us that the Earth, a long, long time ago, <clears throat> was a, a dead rock, a brown, black, gray, dead rock with poisonous atmosphere and water on one side, vapor on the other, and no life. <clears throat> That's the way it was for a long, long, long time. That's the way many planets and celestial still are. Somehow life happened on this earth. I'm not getting into how that happened. I don't know that, but it did. In fact, you and I are here as evidence it did. And through this evolution that we're describing, the dead, black, gray, brown rock with ice and vapor and poisonous atmosphere became this beautiful planet, blue, green, white, with an atmosphere you can breathe and teeming with life and a temperate and climate liquid water. And the puniest species on the planet, that'd be us, used technology to break the cycles of nature that changed it from a rock to a planet. And in doing that, we set about the process of turning it back into a dead, black, gray, brown rock with a poisonous atmosphere and vapor on one side and ice on the other. I want to thank Will Harris for taking the time to show me around his farm and tell me all about the work that he's doing. You can learn more about him and White Oak Pastures at their website, whiteoakpastures.com. <laughs>